I found out on Thursday night that a dear friend and mentor of mine had died unexpectedly in her sleep that day. Carol was an incredible woman. She was so full of love and life and faith. She is who I hope to be when I grow up one day. I haven't, hadn't spoken with her much in the past few months. Between moving and starting a new job and getting married, I had been incredibly busy. It had come as a shock back in July when I had texted her to let her know I was getting married that she replied that she was excited, but that she also had her own news. She had been diagnosed with cancer in her lungs and her vertebrae. Even as she faced her coming death, she did it with a grace and a courage that was only possible because of her relationship with Jesus. Carol and all of us knew her cancer was terminal. The only thing we didn't know was how long it would be until she would get to see Jesus face to face. Though she had been sick, none of us quite expected her to go this soon. She had just celebrated her birthday with her family and her friends. She was out and about and feeling better. We all thought we'd have a little bit more time. And perhaps it was God's providence that all this week in preparation for this sermon, I had been reading the last letters of Steve Hayner before he passed away in 2015. If you don't know who Steve is, Steve was a Presbyterian pastor. He was also an activist who fought passionately for the poor and the marginalized. And in the last few years of his life, he was the president of Columbia Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. It's a Presbyterian seminary. On Friday, Good Friday in 2014, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And over the last nine months of his life, Steve kept a journal, recording all of his thoughts on God and chemo and family and everything in between. In one entry towards the end of his life, Steve wrote, we don't get to choose the finish line, only how we run the race. Today is Palm Sunday. It is the day that we celebrate Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. The palm branches are laid out, the children sing, the people cry out, Hosanna. To the outside, it looks like a celebration. It's like the final mile of the Boston Marathon. The cowbells are ringing, the signs are in the air, the well-wishers cheer from the sidelines. But only the runner knows how difficult that last mile is. That it is often the hardest mile that they will run. Jesus knows he's on his way to his death. Throughout the Gospel of John, he has been speaking of the time to come. He knows where his finish line leads. And even as he stands pleading in the garden, Jesus recognizes that it is not for him to decide the finish line. 
It is for him only to decide how he will run his race. Our text for today, John 19.30, is one sentence, but it's powerful. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Throughout this series in Lent, we have been trying to convey, to communicate that Jesus' death was not an outlier or an aberration of his life. Rather, that Jesus' death was a representation of his entire life. He died as he lived. Jesus' life is the fulfillment of one promise and the beginning of another. For thousands of years, God has been promising the people a Messiah, a new covenant. And we see it in Jeremiah. I will establish with you a new covenant. I will forgive their sins. They will know me and I will know them. And as Jesus cries out, it is finished indeed his work to bring about God's promise is finished. And yet his work is just beginning. Because the promise will go on. The work of God continues. As much as spending hours of my life in seminary translating dead languages didn't seem fun at the time, it did open up the Gospels to me in ways that I couldn't have known. Because English, for all that we speak it and we love it, is a rather limited language. And it often fails to capture the aspect or the meaning behind emotion-laden languages. In particular, in this instance, the Greek says far more than our English ever could. When Jesus cries out, it is finished, he is speaking in what we would call a perfect tense. And it's used rarely in the New Testament, but it conveys a very particular idea. To tell us die, it is finished, actually means it is finished and will continue to be finished. It represents this moment, yes, but it also represents a continued future in which God promises, God's promises come to fruition. At the cross, Jesus' death is the beginning of what many of us call the already but not yet. Yes, the death of Jesus has happened. Yes, the promises have been fulfilled. And yet, they go on. Yes, in him all the promises of God have been, continue to be, and will be fulfilled. Grace is here and will continue to be here. Forgiveness has been offered and will continue to be offered. His last words were and are a promise that once and for all sin has been defeated and we are continually welcomed home. It reminds us that this promise does not begin and end with us. And when we are tempted to despair, to feel abandoned and forgotten, the cry from the cross reminds us that the promise of God goes on today just as it did all those years ago. 
bows his head and he hands over his life. As he stares down his own finish line, he hands over his life to God and just as he lived, he dies with the utmost trust in the one who designed his race. I have always been fascinated with acrobats. I am terrified of heights, and so the idea that people would climb 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 feet in the air and hold on to a little bar and fling themselves across expanses with no net seems crazy. In one of his books, Henri Nouwen recounts a time in his life when he met the Flying Rodleys. They were flying trapeze artists, acrobatic trapeze artists. Think of Cirque du Soleil, if that helps. When he says, one day I was sitting with Rodley, the leader of the troupe in his caravan, talking about flying. He said, as a flyer, I must have complete trust in my catcher. The public might think that I am the great star of the trapeze, but the real star is Joe, my catcher. He has to be there for me with split-second precision and grab me out of the air as I come to him in a long jump. How does it work? Henry asked. The secret, Rodley said, is that the flyer does nothing and the catcher does everything. When I fly to Joe, I simply have to stretch out my arms and hands and wait for him to catch me and pull me safely over the apron behind the catch bar. You do nothing, I said surprised. Nothing, Rodley repeated. The worst thing that a flyer can do is to try to catch the catcher. I'm not supposed to catch Joe. It's Joe's task to catch me. If I grabbed Joe's wrists, I might break them or he might break mine, and that would be the end for both of us. A flyer must fly. The catcher must catch. The flyer must trust with outstretched arms and that his catcher will be there for him. The thing about Steve, about Carol, about Jesus, is not that they didn't fear the end of the race or their finish line, but they trusted God more than they feared that unknown. One of the hardest things for those of us who are stuck in this already not yet to do is to trust, is to believe that when we do leap, the catcher will be there to grab us. And as we spin through the air or this crazy thing called life, we can't see behind us to know that he's there. But we have been gifted to see Jesus go first. And from the other side, we can hear his triumphant cry. It is finished. Everything that was promised is real. And it will be when it's your turn to fly as well. Palm Sunday is a celebration. We're celebrating the last mile of Jesus' life. 
And we can rest assured knowing that the last mile was run in the same way as the first. With eyes and trust firmly focused on the great designer. A flyer must fly. And a catcher must cast. Catcher must catch. And the flyer must trust with outstretched arms that his catcher will be there to catch him. Friends, we have the ultimate catcher. All we have to do is stretch out our arms, and he will be there every single time. Amen.